You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The Supreme Court began the week by turning away several high-profile cases, from an internet sales tax clash to an appeal challenging the NFL's $765 million concussion settlement to an appeal by Hank Greenberg over his fraud lawsuit. You need four justices to agree to take a case, and none of these could get the votes. Our co-host Greg Storr, Bloomberg Supreme Court reporter, was at the court this morning. And also joining us is Stephen Sanders, professor at Indiana University's Morris School of Law. Greg, let's start with the court turning away an appeal by a retail industry trade group over a Colorado law that imposes reporting requirements on Internet retailers. What was the basis of the trade group's challenge? June, this is uh, potentially a really big issue that probably the court will take up. It goes back to this ruling in 1992 where the Supreme Court said a state can't require a a mail order seller, and it's since been applied to Internet sellers, to collect tax unless that, that retailer has a physical presence in the state. So what Colorado did was it said, okay, if we can't do that, uh, what we'll at least do is put some um, uh, notification requirements and reporting requirements on uh, anybody who doesn't collect tax. So you have to send us the name of of your purchasers. You have to tell uh, customers that they have an obligation to buy tax and send them a report at the end of the year. Uh, The trade group challenged that, and the Supreme Court said, no, we don't want to hear your challenge. Steve, this is based, this denial you know, happens in in the wake, well, much later, but the wake of this 1992 decision um, that seems like it's out of touch with the way that the world actually works in the now with the internet. Do you think there's any chance at some point the court's going to be revisiting this issue in regards to the internet? Well, if it decides to accept this case, I think it'll at least, and if it upholds the. Uh, uh, if it upholds the uh, uh, Colorado law, it will at least be uh, uh, chipping away at the foundations of that earlier decision. You know, the, uh, the Constitution's Commerce Clause uh, has been held to mean that states cannot burden the flow of commerce across state lines. And specifically, they can't do things that advantage their own in-state companies and disadvantage out-of-state companies. So the court back in this 1992 case upheld the principle that we need a bright-line rule. We don't want states imposing taxes on out-of-state corporations, because if they do, they might misuse that power to advantage their own state interests and disadvantage out-of-state interests. But clearly, the Internet commerce is a multi-trillion dollar industry. We're talking about something like $23 billion in uncollected sales taxes. So I think the reality is it will force the Supreme Court to at least uh, rethink some of that earlier decision. 
And Greg, the justices also turned away a challenge from former players in the National Football League's $765 million concussion settlement, which has been in the works for so long. What were the former players contending? Yes, so this is a small group of former players uh, who said the settlement is not adequate. In particular, it doesn't do enough for people who may have brain damage already, but they haven't seen any signs of it yet. They don't uh, yet have uh, a diagnosis of what's known as CTE, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, uh, which right now can be diagnosed only after somebody dies. Uh, they said the settlement doesn't uh, uh, take care of those, those people well enough, and they tried to leverage some Supreme Court rulings from the late 1990s where the court said um, that, that big settlements involving uh, people exposed to asbestos were, were too sprawling and, and uh, uh, violated uh, the, the federal rules governing class actions. Well, Greg, just to follow up on this, was there, is this a surprise? I mean, it's gotten so much media attention, this settlement. It's such a big deal given the, the, the importance of the NFL to people. Is it a surprise the court didn't hear this case? Not, not really a surprise. Again, it was a very small group of, of, of players, and the league and the settling players made the argument um, that these are people who had a right to opt out of the settlement. This is not a case where somebody's rights are being taken away, they argued. Uh, they could have, if they thought the deal didn't do enough for them, they could have said, no, I don't want to be a part of it. I'll file my own lawsuit. Steve, in another case that's been around even longer, trial has begun against former AIG chairman Hank Greenberg for allegedly using two sham transactions to hide the insurer's true financial condition. That started in New York in September, more than 11 years after former New York Attorney General Elliot Spitzer filed suit. The justices refused to derail it. What was Greenberg's argument for stopping it? So Greenberg, so the trading of securities is something that's regulated under both state and federal law. And because the Constitution says federal law is supreme, federal law can preempt state law where the two conflict or where they attempt to regulate the same matter in different ways. So here, federal law expressly allows state enforcement actions that allege fraud or deceit, which is what the New York Attorney General has alleged against Hank Greenberg in this case. But New York state law has a lower threshold for proving fraud than does federal law. The state law doesn't require something called scienter, that is that the offending party actually knew that their action was wrongful before committing it. So Greenberg's lawyers argued that the enforcement action by Eric Schneiderman, the New York Attorney General, didn't fit within the exception to preemption that federal law creates. Um, New York's highest appellate court rejected that argument, and today the, the Supreme Court simply indicated without comment, that it was content to let that New York State appellate court decision stand and let the trial go forward. This, of course, expresses no view about whether Greenberg actually committed the sham transactions that the state of New York says he did, simply that state law may be used in this case to attempt to prosecute him. Michael, Greg, and I are talking with Professor um, Professor Stephen Sanders of Indiana University's Morris School of Law about the Supreme Court's turning down several high-profile cases today. Uh, Greg, let's turn to the two death penalty cases uh, that the court turned down over the objection both of Justice Stephen Breyer and one of Justice Stephen Breyer and Justice Elena Kagan. Right. These are both uh, uh, 
appeals by death row inmates. One is a man who was sentenced to death 40 years ago, a man from Florida. Another is a man who uh, uh, the state of Ohio tried to execute in 2009, and they botched that execution. And both of them argued that uh, executing them now would be a violation of the Constitution. Uh, the court did not agree to hear those claims, and as you said, Justice Breyer, and in one case, Justice Kagan, said they would have taken up the case. Justice Breyer, of course, is one of two justices who has said he wants the court to, to reconsider whether the death penalty is constitutional at all, given, given uh, all the, the uh, things that are going on with it right now. Well, Steve, obviously the court does not explain why it turns down cases, but can we read the tea leaves at all about whether... Justice Breyer is going to be able to get any traction on his beliefs about the death penalty, given the fact that the court refused both these cases? Well, I, I think this is one of those things you, you sometimes see in constitutional law and Supreme Court litigation. Justice Breyer has to understand that he's playing for the long game here. I mean, to, to some extent, he's succeeding um, simply because we're here talking about it, and people will talk about these cases and the, the larger argument that Justice Breyer has been making for a number of years now that the death penalty has become so unpredictable and arbitrary in its actual implementation that those problems um, suffice to make it cruel and unusual and therefore unconstitutional. I think, you know, given the court as it's currently constituted and likely to continue under the next administration with the appointments that Donald Trump will get, we're not likely to see uh, an outlawing of the federal death penalty as unconstitutional anytime very soon. Um, as I say, this is part of, a, I think, a longer-term dialogue that Justice Breyer and sometimes with an assist from Justice Ginsburg is trying to create so that legal academics, journalists, and the public will at least uh, have more of a conversation. This will be on the national radar screen. Is this is the death penalty something we want, and is it currently carried out in a way that is conscionable? Greg, there is an Alabama death penalty case that the court has yet to decide about. Tell us about that. Yeah, this is another bid for Supreme Court review. The court did not act on it this morning. It's possible the court will act on it later today or tomorrow. Uh, this is a case out of Alabama, and it's noteworthy because, uh, if you recall, just before the election, uh, just a few days, uh, there was this man's case. Uh, his name is Thomas Arthur. He asked the court to stop his execution, and four justices said they would, but but you need five to, to stay in execution. And the chief justice, John Roberts, said he would extend, uh, be the fifth vote as a courtesy to the four who wanted to hear his case. So now we have the question of whether the court will actually agree to hear arguments in the case, um, and um, we may get. Uh, more clues about how the court will deal with the death penalty. Uh, it, it raises a couple different issues. One has to do with uh, lethal injection and what you have to show to, to show that a method of, of lethal injection is unconstitutional. The other has to do with some uh, particular aspects of Alabama's death, death penalty scheme. That is going to be coming up at one of these conferences. And so uh, today we certainly heard a lot from the court as far as what they are not going to hear. And uh, what do you think, Greg, by the end of the week we might hear some of the cases they will hear? We, we, we might. It's not entirely clear. Right now the court uh, uh, needs to act quickly uh, before they're about to have a four-week recess. But 
they might want to add some more cases so that they can hear them when they come back, uh, so they can hear them in their March calendar, which right now uh, is pretty sparse. So there's reason to think they will act on a few of these cases and agree to hear them uh, before they leave for their four-week break. And we will get that first word from Greg Storr, our Supreme Court reporter and co-host here on Bloomberg Law. And thank you, Stephen Sanders, professor at Indiana University's Morris School of Law, for joining us on Bloomberg Law. Coming up on Bloomberg Law, the future of health care under the new Trump administration. And we're also going to be talking about Washington, the first state to sue agro giant Monsanto over environmental pollution from PCBs. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.